Hello there, and welcome into another edition of The Intersection with conversation about a variety of topics, including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. First up, the National Day of Prayer was commemorated this past week, and I recently spoke with someone who has some insight on the topic of prayer, Sally Burke, who leads Moms in Prayer International. Then, he's very well known in Christian literary circles, and over a year ago married Nancy Lee DeMoss of the Revive Our Hearts radio program. He's Robert Walgamuth, and he has just written a new book on marriage, emphasizing the role of the husband as a shepherd. Some of his comments are coming up. Also, Tosca Lee is a relative newlywed, and she continues to write thought-provoking, suspenseful books. Her latest has a number of themes, including dealing with the past. You'll be hearing from her. Plus, from the American Bible Society, it's Jeff Morin, who spotlights the most recent annual State of the Bible survey conducted by the Barna Group. And on this edition of The Intersection, you'll be hearing some comments from Christian commentator Michael Austin, who shared some information with me recently about the latest edition of Christian History Magazine, which is concentrated on the two world wars of the last century and the role of faith relative to those wars. Plus, from the public square in the American Policy Roundtable, it's Dave Zanotti, who offers a fascinating look at aspects of health care and the government's capacity, or lack thereof, to manage such a huge responsibility. Finally, with an appraisal of President Trump's first 100 days, analysis and commentary from Rachel Alexander of The Stream. This is The Intersection, a production of The Meeting House. I'm Bob Crittenden. Sally Burke is the president of Moms in Prayer International, formerly known as Moms in Touch. She's also the co-author of the book, Unshaken, Experience the Power and Peace of a Life of Prayer. Recently, she discussed with me some principles that can be incorporated into one's prayer life, This is Sally Burke now. Yeah, those are very, very important. And it was amazing. The founder of Fern Nichols, it comes from the Lord's Prayer. And we begin with praise. Who is God? We we focus on who he is by name, by attribute, by character. And not according to our finite mind, but according to his word. You know, it's going to come alive to them to see God is sovereign. It's going to come alive to see him, that he's their creator. It's going to come alive to see that nothing is too hard. Nothing's impossible for him. And that he's our Abba Father. And we can boldly enter his throne room of grace to find mercy and help in our time of need. So praise is most of importance. It, it takes a woman's eyes off of their fears and their worries and places it onto the victorious one that can answer their prayer and is just waiting for them to call on to him so he can show them great and mighty things. Then there's an element of confession there. Comment on that, yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. Isaiah is taken up to the very throne of God. He sees, you know, 24-7, they're worshiping God. Holy, holy, art thou, God Almighty, was, who is, who is to come. Immediately, his soul is pricked. Woe is me, you know, sinful man with sinful lips. And so immediately, we realize, we see who God is, and, and we, we want the fullness of God to, to work through us. So we begin to confess our sins, and we do it silently, you know. And, and God shows us easily what our sins are. And once we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So his empowerment through us can can pray through us. You know, it always says we know not how we ought to pray, but the Holy Spirit prays through us. So I don't want anything in my life. I don't want jealousy. I don't want anger. I don't want anything to separate me from the fullness of what God wants to do at that moment, at that time when I'm in the very throne room of God. So confession is powerful and freeing. Then there's the whole aspect of 
thanksgiving. And the Bible talks again and again about really approaching God with a thankful heart. Why is thanksgiving important? All four steps are transforming, but this one is is amazing to do. I think about in Psalm 78 when God told his people that a generation yet born will praise God if they will remember and tell their children what he has done. And this is a time of thanking God for what he has done. Praise is like a noun. Confession is a verb. When we see what God literally has done, and in our groups that one hour, that once a week as we're praying, and we see that, that somebody's son, you know, was saved out of darkness into his glorious light. When we see those answers to prayer, that builds our faith. In fact, even non-Christians will say that if you wake up every day and you count your blessings, what are you thankful for? You can go from depression to great joy. But it's so much more powerful than that. It's, it's you get to know God in action. You get to see him move. It's just not who he is up there in heaven, but it's who he is, you know, hmm. here on earth and how he's moving, you know, according to his will through his people here on earth. There is something so powerful about intercession, and that's what you guys are really known for, is standing in the gap and really being able to pray for what's going on in those schools. Intercession is is something that is so critical in our respective prayer lives, correct? Correct, correct. Our power's on our knees. We don't have to be right there on that campus. We can be in, in somebody's living room and impact that campus. But you, you remember in Ezekiel, when the children of Israel were about to be wiped out, and God says, what, what, what man is going to stand in the gap for me? And nobody stood in the gap for him, and, and they were taken away. Yet Moses, one man, stood in the gap for the children of Israel, and he was able to lead them to the promised land. So really what we're doing in intercession, we're standing in the gap for the lives of our children, for each one on those campuses, and we're praying God's word. How do you know God's going to answer your prayer if you pray according to his word? And his word never comes back void. It always fulfills God's purpose. And, And so that's what we've been doing. We've been agreeing with God in his word, and we've been doing it one with another, and we're watching God answer the prayers. You know, while the children of Israel were out there battling, and there's Joshua, as long as Moses' arms were up, they were, they were victorious, you know. And then when his arms got tired and they came down, Aaron and Ur came alongside him, lifted up his arms. So as two or more gathered together, interceding on the behalf of the children in the schools, we we're witnessing victory after victory. Salvation, revival, and spiritual awakening are happening on, the, on our campuses. And it's an exciting thing. Sally Burke here on The Intersection. Find out more by visiting the website momsinprayer.org. This is the Intersection Podcast with Robert Walgamuth, author of the book, Like the Shepherd, Leading Your Marriage with Love and Grace. In our recent conversation, he discussed how God brought him together with Nancy Lee DeMoss after the death of his wife, Bobby. And he shared material relating to some of the principles he includes in the book. Here now with some of that content is Robert Walgamuth. The book, Like the Shepherd, actually was born on one of our early dates, Nancy and my early dates. We're at an Italian restaurant in Orlando, Florida, where I lived. And, and I said to her, you know, over these years, you have ministered to tens, hundreds of thousands of women, maybe millions of women. And one of the things that you've done, among other things, is you've encouraged them in their marriages to let their husbands lead. So 
I said, okay, so these women come home from a conference or they read your book. Who's going to tell their husband that that's what they've just been taught? And she said, you know, that is a really good mm-hmm. point. She said, someday somebody ought to write a book for the husbands of these women who have been challenged to let them lead. And I raised my hand. <laughs> I raised my hand in this Italian restaurant in Orlando, Florida, and said, I'll write that book. And that's this book. That's oh Like the Shepherd. Now, had you and Nancy already decided that you were going to be married at this point? <laughs> well, you think I'm kind of pushy, don't you? <laughs> yeah, whatever it takes back there, you know. Um, well, yeah, we were not officially engaged. Okay. But, you know, she's 57, never married. I'm 10 years older than she is. Don't tell anybody. Your and secret's safe with obviously me. Obviously single again. And so, you know, at, I guess at that point in your life, you're you're thinking immediately about the potential of getting married. So, you know, I guess, like the guy says, when you're up to bat, you're swinging for the fences in a situation like that. And, you know, we knew, no no joke intended here, but we did, we prayed together all the time, mm. even in our early dating days, and really asked the Lord to take away the love that we had for each other that was growing if this really wasn't his will, something that he wanted us to do. So uh, clearly that wasn't the case. We did feel his leading, and so that led to that. But the conversation I'm describing would would have been in March of uh, 15, and so we were engaged in May of 15. So it had been a couple months before I actually got on my knee and proposed to her. Mm-hmm. As you begin to put this together, what were some of the principles that you you discovered or that you really wanted to relate to those that would read the book? Yeah. Well, here's the way this unfolded. Um, when we were dating early in our dating relationship, Nancy said to me, or she asked me, what was it that you loved about marriage? And without really thinking through the way I was answering the question, I said, I loved the joy of shepherding my wife. I used that word, that verb. And she told me later, she didn't at the moment, but she told me later how much that meant to her and how much she loved the concept of shepherding. Of course, it's a, it's a biblical um, image that's throughout the scripture. And, and all of us are referred to as sheep, all we like sheep. Jesus himself in the book of Isaiah is, refers, is referred to a lamb that's led to the slaughter. So we're all in good company. So that, the, that word was used early in our dating relationship. And then, uh, I don't remember exactly the first time we heard this hymn, but we are big hymn lovers. And the hymn, Savior like a shepherd leads mm-hmm. us, became our song. You know, couples have our song. That was our song. And so in the in the uh, text messages that we'd send back and forth, and we did, we, sent, <laughs> we sent a few. What a great way to communicate when you're falling in love. Uh, we started using that, that concept, the whole idea of shepherd. So uh, when, when the idea of the, of the book really took form and the publisher said, we need a title, I said, I, first of all, it was going to be just shepherd, and then they helped us. Uh, reframe it to like the shepherd, the subtitle, Leading Your Marriage with Love and Grace. So the the idea of shepherd, obviously, the scripture went first on that, but very quickly we we picked up that model 
And then throughout the book, I talk about Psalm 23, of course, the image of the good shepherd and what the good shepherd provides for you and me, and then using that uh, image, that outline, as the outline for the book. Mm. Robert Walgamuth here on The Intersection. You can find out more information at his website, robertwalgamuth.com. That's W-O-L-G-E-M-U-T-H. You can also learn about the ministry headed by his wife, Nancy DeMoss Walgamuth. It's called Revive Our Hearts, and the website is reviveourhearts.com. Well, this is The Intersection Podcast with best-selling author and relative newlywed Tosca Lee. In our recent conversation, she discussed the plot and themes found in her book, Firstborn, which is a sequel to her previous work, The Progeny. The book has as one of its themes how to deal with the past. This is Tosca Lee now. These two books both take place in the very near future, so just maybe just a few years in the future. And it's about the fictional descendants of a historical figure called uh, named Elizabeth Batheroy. And um, it's, a, it's a thriller it's a um it's got slight supernatural in it and it's it's kind of a run for your life nonstop adventure um just the two books i the i've been kind of hounded by my readers ever since the first one came out so i'd like to call this um cliffhanger redemption day for me um because i kind of left them hanging a little bit with the first one which um, I'm not too sorry about it. I can say I'm sorry, but I'm not. It's super fun. <laughs> Absolutely. you got to have some cliffhangers <laughs> along the way, right? And that's right. <laughs> so um, Cliffhanger Redemption Day, It's this is a super fun um, adventure for me. During the time that I wrote these books, I, I fell in love and got married and became an instant mom to four. And so here I am writing these books, ironically, you know, called The Progeny and Firstborn and stuff like that. So it was during a really exciting time in my, my personal life that, that this all happened. So these books are really kind of near and dear to my heart, and they're also just a lot of fun. Sure. So who is the progeny, and how does this figure actually affect the other characters, without giving too much away? Well, it starts off with um, the main character, Emily. She has woken up after electively choosing to erase the last two years of her memory. She doesn't know why. She doesn't know um, what she's trying to hide even from herself, but it's clear that um, that she's she's not just starting over. She's actually hiding. And it starts in the, the north woods of Maine, and eventually the story becomes a globetrotting adventure that takes her to um, to Hungary and Croatia and Vienna and all over Europe. And, um, and she's following in the footsteps of this historical character named Elizabeth Bathory. And she finds out later on um, that she is a descendant of, of Elizabeth Bathory, who has a very shady um, past. Elizabeth Bathory was, was a, um, a serial killer, actually. But um, this is not a serial killer story. It's just that um, she finds out she's a descendant of her, and she meets up with others, um, others of these descendants, and um, finds out that they are being systematically hunted. So for her, it's all about survival. Oh my goodness! So if you had to describe <laughs> this this new book, The Firstborn, give us give us an idea about what you would want to communicate with it. Um, there's there's several themes in it. Um, you know, I never really know the theme of a book until I sit down and write it. Sure. Um, but one thing that really came out in this book, it's about 
it's about letting go of the past and it's about living in the moment, which is the only moment that is. It's about letting go of those generational, you know, things that can that can kind of haunt our families, you know, those generational curses. And it's about um, being fully in, in the moment and it's about love and it's about grace. Um, so thematically, that's what it is. And it's also about the fact that everybody has um, things about them that um, we may see as, as negatives. You know, I have OCD and I've been much more public about this in the last year. Um, but we have things that are, are maybe difficult for us, but are unique to us and inform who we are. And, um, and we should, you know, embrace those things and, and, you know, kind of run with that. So um, I've been able to do that a little bit more. And, and this book is just an encouragement to other people who have things that they may be struggling with, you know, that that makes you unique. And um, and they're not all, you know, negatives, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Tosca Lee here on The Intersection. Learn more about her at ToscaLee.com. That's T-O-S-C-A. This is The Intersection Podcast with Jeff Morin. Executive Vice President for Ministry Mobilization for the American Bible Society. Recently, he discussed with me some of the different aspects of the work of the society, as well as the results of the latest State of the Bible survey conducted in association with the Barna Group, indicating how people regard and use the Bible. Now with some State of the Bible information, this is Jeff Morin. Seven years we've been doing this. This is the scorecard for the Bible, or maybe we might just... Talk to my children about this. This is their report card. How's the Bible faring in America? And so we're looking at perception, and we're looking at uh, obstacles to the Scriptures, what's keeping people from receiving and experiencing the hope that's in, in God's Word. And we're looking at where the church stands with the Scriptures. So it's a kind of omnibus study that gives us a pretty good picture of faith in America as it's rooted in God's Word. Well, one of the statistics here with the State of the Bible survey shows that quite a significant number of people surveyed indicate that they believe that morals are declining in America. That is the the negative news. But talk about how people see the Bible as really being a source of hope and a source of some of the, as we might say, positive aspects of life in America. We've studied this for a while, and so some, one of the important things for us is to see how is America trending, and we, could, we can talk about that more, but as a snapshot for where America is right now, yes, indeed, 81% of Americans today, so eight, over more than 8 out of 10 people, would say, I don't like where the morals are today. I, I see them declining, and morals is that, that big word for the kind of fabric of our nation. How, how are we doing in our communities and our relationships and our integrity? It's, it's a big kind of collective word, but they see a decline that. And of course, you know, no one wants to see that. That's not a happy piece of news. Uh, But at the same time, at the exact same time, uh, America points to the scriptures and says, this is a place of hope. Um, I'll put it as graphically as I can. If you are standing with two people, one of those folks, 58% is is the statistic. So one of those two people is going to, if you talk to him, would say, I want to know more about the Bible. The, the question is that, that the way they state it is they wished they read the Bible more. Uh, I want – so before I say anything else, I want to encourage us, if we are followers of Jesus or members of a ministry, to take that under account and say, look, you've got a better than half shot that the person you're going to speak to would actually be interested, would want to know more about those scriptures. I take that as a challenge but also as a point of encouragement. 
Well, and and as we see that that people are really seeing the Bible as a source of of hope in their lives, let's talk about some of the numbers to to mm-hmm. reinforce that that whole concept. How how prevalent is this sense of hope in the Bible among those that were surveyed? Yeah, quite strong. So even the, even larger than those who wish they read it, for there is almost 70% of those are looking to the scriptures to find what they can find there, something that would draw them closer to God, right? That they would read narrative, that they would experience something of the truth of God and the promises of God, the purpose of God. And so Americans, 60% of them are, are looking to the scriptures for that. Um, they're also coming to the scriptures in times of challenge. Uh, the, the, you know, one of the number one reasons why people increase their reading of the of the scriptures of the Bible is when they're coming out of places where they just, you know, you know, it happens to all of us. They can't make sense of that crisis or the loss or the struggle in their life. Uh, isn't it great that they and that's and God's word is there for that for that purpose for others. But it is God's word is there for that purpose. So we're glad that Americans still see that. Um, I'll give you one more statistic because I really I appreciate this one. This was a new question for us this year. Uh, we asked America, this is a projection of America at large, adults 18 plus at large, hey, what do you think about when you see a Bible reader? Because I think I had or others that I've talked to have had this uh, perception that, well, gosh, I see a Bible reader. I might see someone that isn't you know, seen in a positive way. America said, said just the opposite. Let me share with you the top three answers of what came back. Again, when we asked, when you see someone that you recognize as someone who reads the Bible, how would you describe them? Here's the top three answers. Number one, humble. Hmm. Number two, loving. And I think my favorite, number three, is accepting. I mean, again, I think we sometimes, those of us who, who love the Word and, and, and love God and, and what He's provided for us in His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ, I think sometimes we get afraid to publicly share what we know and, and, and who we know. Uh, and so and maybe even be afraid to pull out the, a Bible in, in the coffee shop. America says, go for it. I see it with loving, <laughs> humble, and I'm actually accepting. <laughs> so um, let's take some encouragement from that. Jeff Morin here on The Intersection. Find out more about the Society by going to the website American.Bible. To learn about the survey, go to stateofthebible.org. This is The Intersection. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House. The website address is meetinghouseonline.info. When you visit, you'll find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand, through which you can listen to and download full conversations with recent guests on The Intersection Podcast. You can also subscribe to The Intersection Podcast through iTunes. There is a link provided through that homepage. Also, two blogs are accessible. One is The Three, with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room, with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House program. You can also follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Video content can be accessed also. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Well, the intersection continues now with Christian commentator Michael Austin. In our recent conversation, he spotlighted the most recent issue of Christian History magazine published by the Christian History Institute. The title of the magazine is Faith in the Foxholes, Seeking Hope Amidst War's Despair. From that recent conversation, which includes information relative to the start of World War I, this is Michael Austin. The world that we're living in today, the stage was set, I believe, to a great extent by these two uh, uh, global wars that we refer to as the First and the Second World War. Um, the 
the stage has been set for and and to understand what's going on today i think it's really impossible without uh knowing something about these world wars i'll give you a couple of examples and by the way one of the articles the lead article in the magazine by jeffrey webb um titled the crisis of the west gives you a good uh quick synopsis of the history of both world war one and world war two what uh, what was at work, um, the events that that caused these wars to come about, um, how it was that uh, throughout Europe, one conflict after another began to, uh, like, like a, a row of dominoes, uh, one situation after another developed so rapidly that um, it ignited the entire world. Uh, and it's and the uh, the, the in, impact of, of these conflicts spread throughout the world. Um, so that article is a very good quick view to understand uh, how these things got started. Um, and it's there's a couple of interesting themes. Now, what was going on just to just quickly to to mention the, uh, uh, some of the flavor of this time. The, um, the countries, and by the way, many of the countries that uh, existed at the beginning of World War I no longer exist. Um, but uh, the, part of the reason for that was that there was a, a, a seismic shift in our worldview. Uh, the countries that made up Europe were monarchies. There was this tradition of the king and uh, the king's family uh, ruling a, a area or a country or a region. And uh, that monarch would have a relationship with the church. Historically, they would have a relationship with what was known as the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was the Catholic Church and their influence on these various countries Going all the way back, by the way, to Charlemagne in the uh, 700s and the 800s and the development of the church in the European uh, theater and the development of these various countries. Uh, way back then, it was basically, um, you know, uh, armies, uh, what we would call today militias, uh, staking out territory and trying to uh, establish control. Um, Charlemagne, and by the way, there's a wonderful issue. Um, uh, uh, can't call the number of it at the, at the moment, but uh, uh, there was an issue devoted to Charlemagne. And the whole idea of the concept of the relationship between the church and the state began at that time. And so these monarchs that ruled these areas of Europe in uh, the early 1900s, uh, each of them had a relationship with the uh, Holy Roman Empire, and some of them were uh, Christians and some of them were not Christians. And so what was happening at that time was that the people, uh, uh, the, the Magna Carta, of course, had been signed. The, um, all of these monarchs were subject to the various uh, controlling families, the, the powerful powerful families, economically powerful, politically powerful. 
They had a great deal of influence on these monarchs. And so it was a very complicated political situation with each one of them. And uh, one of the themes was the overthrow of the monarchy. Michael Austin here on The Intersection. Find out more about the magazine by going to christianhistorymagazine.org. The Intersection continues now with Dave Zanotti, CEO of the American Policy Roundtable and the Public Square. In our conversation recently, he discussed the health care system in America and government's attempts to manage it in light of his short book available for download online called They Just Can't Do It. Here now is Dave Zanotti. The history really goes back the whole way uh, to the 1960s, and that's where we tapped into the expertise of a number of friends that we have. One in particular, our chief medical associate at the American Policy Roundtable in the public square, our expert, Dr. Charles McGowan, who actually was in practice in the 1960s, uh, came out of the Air Force as a flight surgeon, went into private practice. He's still in practice today, and he remembers what medicine was like before the government started to take it over. Uh, and, and, and so we were able to draw back with personal experiences as well as research and scientific evaluation in regards to can the government do this? What's the history of government involvement? Has it made the process better or worse, more expensive or less? And are people satisfied? So you pointed out a large number of problems, uh, not the least of which we've got a population of elected officials in Washington, D.C., who, meaning no disrespect, but desiring to be honest, at the end of the day, don't know what they're talking about because they don't know the history, they've never practiced medicine, and they don't know what's in Obamacare to start with. So, you know, someone might say, well, you know, you guys, you're, you're talking about health care. What does the Bible, what does a biblical perspective have to do with, with health care? Comment on that, if you would. And also from a, a constitutional and a founder's perspective, what the government's been trying to do. How does that fly in the face of what the founders intended? We are commanded to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus said the second commandment is like unto it, that we should love our neighbors, we love ourselves. So our neighbor's health and welfare is to be our concern, especially when we live in a representative form of government, where we are born in this country with the gift of civil liberty and the responsibility to tend to it so that it does not erode, so that our rights of free speech and religious liberty and freedom of conscience are not eroded, these opportunities that we take for granted every day. So the biblical responsibility is simply the biblical responsibility of love of neighbor. That's where this begins, and certainly we all know that there's nothing that matters as much to folks as their health and the health of the people that they love. So we've got to be responsible. If public policy is going to get involved, it's going to impact my neighbor's health care and his ability to gain access to health care, I better be paying attention, Mm. or I better quit suggesting that I love my neighbor. So we've got a biblical mandate without any question. But secondly, the Great Commission is not just a, a, a preaching document. Jesus says, go out and teach. He says, go out and teach everything that I have commanded you. Uh, and, and one of the things that Jesus commands us to do is to be honest, to be sincere and faithful, to treat others the way that we would want to be treated. And when we've got a nationalized health care system that's got people standing in line for ration care and people are, are dying, like we have seen in the Veterans Administration, once again, that, that's not the way Jesus teaches us we're supposed to deal with each other. So 
Caring for our neighbor is a very significant reality that brings us into the realm of public policy. Our dear friend, the late Chuck Colson, used to always remind us uh, that Christians of all people, he would say, should be the best of citizens because we understand where liberty comes from and our responsibility to keep liberty alive. So, so there's certainly a, a, a strong responsibility. Now, the question on the government and health comes back to George Washington's farewell address when he consistently reminded us that we need to be very careful about usurpation of authority and power, where in fact the civil government would attempt to do things that it didn't have any business doing, or branches of the government would attempt to take away from other branches their authority. So what we've got is a situation now where we have a huge administrative nightmare where HHS, which is a department that's been empowered by Congress, is making decisions for individuals, for doctors, for hospitals, for communities, and basically is, is, is doing more work on health care than Congress. So you've got a situation where you're creating a bureaucracy that is out of control, outside of constitutional boundaries and oversights. At the end of the day, people are getting hurt. I, I mean, it started as simple as a website that wouldn't work, and a lot of people got hurt because they're frustrated because they couldn't get what they needed. But believe me, this is just the beginning of sorrows. You've seen civil liberties questions. You've seen conscience questions. You've seen religious liberty questions. We've had a, seen a Supreme Court decisions over whether or not people could exercise religious liberty and lose their health care or be fined by the government. These issues all, all come across the same table when the government's trying to do what by design and capacity it cannot do, usurping responsibility and authority from individuals, their doctors, their hospitals, their communities, and their families. Dave Zanotti here on The Intersection. You can find out more information about and download the book at thepublicsquare.com. Finally, on this edition of The Intersection Podcast, it's Rachel Alexander, Senior Editor for The Stream and former Assistant Attorney General for the state of Arizona. Recently, she talked about some aspects of the first 100 days of the Trump administration. Here now is Rachel Alexander. Getting Neil Gorsuch on the Supreme Court is an incredible accomplishment, especially considering the Democrats tried to filibuster him, and you know the Senate was able to turn around and shut them down. And um, you know Trump, when he issued that list, you know he admitted he had guidance from the Federal Society, the Heritage Foundation. These are conservative organizations. These aren't just you know standard mainstream or even Republican organizations. These are conservative groups that helped him vet those judges. And Gorsuch is arguably you know the most conservative of all of them. And so um, I think you know a lot of uh, evangelicals who didn't like Trump during the primary. You know, once they saw him put out this list that was a genuine, bona fide conservative list, um, they knew they had to do something. I mean, the Supreme Court in recent years has made such huge decisions uh, coming down on the left, you know, from same-sex marriage to Obamacare, that people are realizing this is really going to affect you and your life. And you might not like Trump as a person, and you might not like some of his past, but um, he's, he's going to be a million times better than Hillary. Well, Rachel Alexander joining us today from the stream, and we're talking about some of the the different aspects of the Trump presidency here as we're rolling over the first 100 days. And you look not only at the appointment, the, the nomination of Neil Gorsuch to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court, how influential do you think with evangelicals was the the naming of Mike Pence to be the vice president. I think that was 
huge. And because I think most evangelicals know um, his famous statement, I'm a Christian first, a conservative second, and a Republican third. So, I mean, this guy has made a name for himself by standing up for us evangelical Christians and he's just got the persona, the demeanor, you know, the, the, the socially conservative record, you know, as governor that people, us on the right, evangelicals, that we love. And um, he's just been so steady for Trump, because Trump can be a little all over the board sometimes, a little scattered. But Pence provides that steady, calming influence. Um, they're already talking about him, you know, running for president after Trump. Um, so I think that was just a brilliant maneuver by Trump, and you can even probably call that an accomplishment, you know, picking such a solid um, vice president who is very respected. Um, he's not even gotten a lot of opposition from the left. And, uh, again, you know, I think he did really help bring in that evangelical vote because Trump is not – I don't think he's an evangelical. He's a little more mainstream Protestant and uh, – you know, he's made some gaffes early on where he said, I've never asked God for forgiveness. And people, you know, never really, a lot of people didn't forgive him for that. So bringing Trump in to balance out, or excuse me, Pence in to balance out the ticket was a brilliant move. Well, now think about Pence within the first, I guess it was the first week or generally that period of time where Pence became the highest ranking federal official to address the March for Life, which, of course, attracts thousands to the nation's capital. And there were many in the evangelical community that were really concerned about what Trump's commitment to the life issue would be. And right out of the gate, he rescinded the Mexico City policy, providing funding for international abortions. For the pro-life community, what would you think would be uh, Trump's performance thus far? Um, it's been incredible. I mean, that's just one thing he's done. He also uh, repealed the Obama mandate that forced states to fund Planned Parenthood. Um, he stopped funding to the United Nations Population Fund, which promotes abortions. And that's just off the top of my head. Um, you know, there's probably more things I, I haven't yet uh, thought of. But um, so far, his record um, when it comes to abortion is pretty good. Now, I know he is in a fight with Congress right now over some of this funding, and so we'll see what happens there. That remains to be seen. But um, overall, I, I think he's pretty solid on it. Rachel Alexander here on The Intersection. The Stream's website is thestream.org. Well, that just about wraps up this edition of the Intersection Podcast. It's a weekly production of The Meeting House, and the website address is meetinghouseonline.info. When you visit, you will find a link to the download center marked Meeting House On Demand. Also, you can get connected to two blogs, The Front Room as well as The Three. You can also get subscribed to the Intersection Podcast through iTunes. You can also listen to or download recent editions of the podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. You can get connected to video content as well. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.